Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. I'm Richard Walensky. This is KPFA's Bay Area Theater podcast, featuring stage reviews, along with extended versions of interviews heard on Arts Waves on Cover to Cover. My guest is Jason Grah, G-R-A-A-E, who plays Ebenezer Scrooge in 42nd Street Moon's production of the musical Scrooge in Love, which is playing at the Gateway Theater in San Francisco through December 22nd. Jason Grah was in the original cast of the off-Broadway hit Forever Plaid. He appeared on Broadway in A Grand Night for Singing, Snoopy, Falsettos, and other shows, has been playing The Wizard in the national tour of Wicked, and has appeared on several Broadway recordings. He also was a cabaret performer. Scrooge and Love was first performed in 2015, and that, I guess, was the world premiere. The composer you'd worked with before, back in the days of Snoopy when you were a kid, (laughs) did that have any bearing on bringing you into the show? Well, I'm sure it didn't hurt. When they first decided to do this show, uh, Greg McKellen, who was the artistic director at Moon back then, suggested my name. And so that made it uh, a little more palpable for Larry Grossman since I'd worked with him in 1983. That was one of my first jobs in New York. So he said, oh, yeah, I like him. And I had just done a review of his work at the York Theater a couple years before. So I've kind of stayed in Larry's life. He's a genius. I just think he is just one of the great Broadway songwriters of all time. So it helped. The show itself, what kind of describe what this show is? Well, it's the sequel to A Christmas Carol. So it happens one year later after A Christmas Carol. Scrooge is transformed. He's become a kinder, gentler soul. And the ghosts come back because they see that he's transformed. They're happy that they got him to this next level. But they see that he's lonely. And what does all this goodness mean if he doesn't have someone to share it with? So they take him back to a point in his life where he kind of screwed up with his girlfriend, Belle, when he was younger. And he kind of opted for work over romance. So they take him back to re-explore that. And that's what Scrooge and Love's about. And the songs, were they tailored to you? Because Larry Grossman knew you were in it? I just would love to say yes. Yes, he wrote it all for me, but no. (laughs) No, it was all done before I got here. (laughs) But he did put them in my key, so that's really, you know, very convenient. But the songs are great. And Kellen Blair wrote the lyrics, and Kellen wrote Murder for Two. For your listeners who don't know Larry Grossman, he wrote Snoopy and Minnie's Boys and Grind and Good Time Charlie, and he wrote for the uh, for Sesame Street, and he's had quite an auspicious career. Well, your own career is pretty auspicious. I first became aware of Jason Graw back with Strike Up the Band, which was part of a series of CDs of reconstructed Gershwin shows, and that was the first one. By that point, we'll go back further in a second to the beginnings, but at that point, how did you get involved in that? And that led to a number of recordings with New World, 
several these reworkings of original shows. Yeah, that was quite a quite a period of time there. Uh, I had already done Babes in Arms. John McGlynn had started this Jerome Kern series at Town Hall. You remember that? And uh, Town Hall and Carnegie Hall at the smaller Weill Recital Hall. And we would do these concerts of um, Leave It to Jane and Zip Goes a Million and Sitting Pretty and all these great old Jerome Kern Princess Theater musicals. And so I was very lucky to have gotten in on those. And I kind of that type. I mean, you know, I always thought I was like born in the wrong era, but I always had that, you know, kind of feel for the 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s musicals. So it was a really easy fit for me. And so at that point, I had done Babes in Arms uh, at Lincoln Center. We did a concert of that and recorded it and Sitting Pretty and those Kern things. And then the uh, Strike of the Band thing happened and I'd kind of made a, you know, name for myself doing. <laughs> Old dead composers words. <laughs> well, some Call of the, Jason Graw. <laughs> well, some of those shows wound up at Forty Second Street Moon. Yes, they used the original librettos. They were outside of the music. They were terrible shows. They're peculiar, aren't they? <laughs> they are really peculiar. When we did a couple of the things, uh, the Jerome Kern shows, you know, they updated the book and they had a new book writer come in and, and do stuff and kind of punched up the jokes and cut down some of the plot. But uh, often we did the original scripts, and they were really bizarre, really bizarre and strange. And, I mean, even Babes in Arms, which has, you know, maybe one of the most perfect, glorious scores ever written, the show that <laughs> ties it all together is really weird, you know? I mean, not a, it's just a, it's like a, a bizarre script, and it's shocking that these... High school kids were singing these very sophisticated lyrics of Where or When and uh, My Funny Valentine and, uh, you know, uh, Ladies of Tramp. And, you know, they're all like 16 year olds and stuff in high school. <laughs> and uh, so it was it was bizarre, but uh, fascinating, fascinating, nevertheless. To well, when they became films, Babes in Arms with Judy Garland right. and Mickey Rooney, they had to rework them because the scripts yeah. were so weird. Yeah, yeah. they had to, <laughs> no one would have bought tickets to go see that. They also got rid of most of the songs in those movies and Hollywooded it up. Well, that was one of the reasons that these recordings were so great because they restored the original songs which hadn't been heard right. in years. Right, right. One of the low points, but very interesting points and very un PC was when Savian Glover, that incredible tap dancer who, you know, made his mark in Tap Dance Kid and has gone on and done such incredible work. He's amazing. We did Babes in Arms. Also, after Lincoln Center, we did uh, the complete original version at Library of Congress that John McGlynn conducted that one. And Debbie Gravitt and Rebecca Luker and Kim Criswell and George Dvorsky and I all did it. And Savian, uh, they added that song back, which is always cut all Dark chillins is light on their feet. All dark chillins is light on their feet. Ba, 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 da, da, da. I mean, and the audience was shocked. And that was the 90s. So now that would just be forget it, you know. Right. But still, it's interesting to hear what was written. And he he sold it and he, he made it work. But, I mean, it's gobsmacking when you hear that now, you know. Shocking. I'm trying to remember. Was that? I don't believe that was on the CD. No, they cut that. <laughs> very smart. Very, very smart. smart, Maria. Very <laughs> smart. <laughs> Jason Graw, 
Now, you grew up in Tulsa, which is not exactly a place for musical comedy, or is it? Well, you got to do something in Tulsa. I was born in Chicago, and then uh, we ended up moving to Tulsa, but I, I mostly grew up in Tulsa. It's a great city to grow up in, you know. If you were white. If you were white, well, they had some issues with that, but it's better now. Are you aware of the TV show Watchmen, which brought up the massacre in Tulsa? Yes. Uh, were you aware of that when you were growing up? Not really. Not really. I thought it was peculiar that the north side of Tulsa was mostly people of color. You know, everybody was over in one section and, you know, then everybody else was over in the other. So that was bizarre, but it was the 60s and 70s and I was young and an idiot, so I didn't really know. So, but yeah, it's, it's quite an incredible story that they've had. It's better now. In high school, you were oboist? Yes, I was an oboe player, and uh, I was a complete oboe nerd. I loved the oboe, and I played in the Youth Symphony and the All-State Orchestra. I was the drum major of our high school marching band, and um, you know, I did community theater and all that. The, my mother was a performer in New York, and she was a dancer, and so she gave that up and you know had kids and did all that. And we did at Tulsa Little Theater Gypsy, and she played Tessie Tura, the stripper, and uh, Sam Harris and I were newsboys in it when we were like in seventh and eighth grade or something like that. So that was really exciting for me. Yeah, I've interviewed Sam a couple of times. Have you? I don't think his voice has changed since then. He <laughs> sings so high. Do you know how hard I try to have those high notes? I can't sing that high. I have too much testosterone. When you were growing up, were you listening to all those scores, too? Yes. Okay, so that was part of it also. Yes, absolutely. I was stage struck, and, you know, my parents had West Side Story and My Fair Lady movie. I thought Audrey Hepburn was the best singer I'd ever heard in my life. I was like, <laughs> oh, she's my favorite soprano of anybody. I was crushed when I found out Marty Nixon was singing for her. You know, then I became like a Judy Garland. Not Judy Garland. A Judy Garland, I, I didn't have any feeling toward her except for uh, Wizard of Oz. But uh, Julie Andrews really um, spoke to me a lot. And as an oboist, too, I appreciated her musicality so much because her voice was just perfect. And I had all her, like, TV guide pictures and Mary Poppins albums, all that was like covered my walls until Funny Girl came out and then I ripped them all down and then it was I replaced them with all Barbara Streisand pictures. I saw Streisand on Broadway in that. Did you? Yes. Wow. I, <laughs> I would have loved to have seen it. That's one of my great regrets. I would have been three, but I could have seen it. Well, I'm a little older than you, so there you go. <laughs> Glad somebody is. Listen, I just did the national tour of Wicked for the last year and a half and I was the oldest one in the cast, so it's Refreshing to talk to people my age. How was it doing doing a show for a year and a half, the same character? Well, it was one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had. It, it's a phenomenon, and it's really thrilling to do a show that people are so ecstatic to see. I, for every single performance of that year and a half, I was excited to go on stage because I knew the people in the audience, it was such an event for them, and... People went out of their way to spend the money, to come see it. You know, people all remember the first time they saw Wicked. I've never been in a show where, you know, after the show at the stage store, people are like, this is my 25th time seeing Wicked. And, you know, I, it's just like, geez, it's, it really speaks to people. It keeps reinventing itself and lasting, you know. How do you stay fresh? There was a time like in Fresno where I got a little, uh, I was like, uh-oh, I was jumping ahead with my lines. But uh, you listen to what's being said to you. And 
you know, the wizard, it's not like he's carrying the show, unlike maybe Scrooge in Love, who I never leave the stage in this one. But the wizard's on for less than a half hour out of the two hours and 45 minutes. And there's no fat to the wizard. He comes on, he does what he needs to do, and he gets off. So there's no time to, you know, have your mind wander or, you know, not be in the moment. So it was it was pretty easy in that way. So you wound up in college and then eventually came to New York. Yeah. What was the decision like to come to New York, and how did you get into your first show? Well, I went to uh, Cincinnati Conservatory, which was the first musical theater program. Now it's, you know, there's... Most schools have them, but uh, our entire graduating class moved to New York City, so it was a no-brainer. A lot of us went to Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, got our union cards there and summer stock, and then we all moved to New York. I think there were under 10 of us that graduated in my class, and so we all moved there. Didn't even give it a second thought. And uh, my first audition, I ended up getting four callbacks for, which was a Broadway show, Bring Back Birdie. Remember that one? Yes, Cheetah Rivera, yeah. and, and it was a flop. It was a flop. They really didn't need to bring back Birdie. <laughs> <laughs> I was crushed. I mean, it was my first audition, and I kept getting called back and called back, and and the final callback. It was literally like chorus line, and you know, I was 22 years old, and we stood on stage of I think it was the Belasco or the Lyceum, one of those theaters on the other side of Broadway, and we stood there, all the chorus guys, and we all had to stand and like you know, step front and say what our Broadway show was that we were in and what our other credits were. And I had no credits. And so I ca everybody had, was in the cast of West Side Story that was at the callback. I stepped out and I said, my name's Jason Grah, and I played Chino in West Side Story at Lyric Theater in Oklahoma City and stepped back. And somebody laughed, one of the people in the audience, and that was it, and they cut me. So my Broadway debut was Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up? And that was a hit in Chicago in a small theater, I think it was like a 500-seat house or something in Summit, Illinois. And it was running for years there. And then we, I think they did it in Detroit, and then we did it in Philadelphia, and it was got great reviews. And I got really excited about it. My friends would come, and they'd go, well, it's not very good. I said, but look at these reviews. What do you know, friends of mine? And then we moved to the Alvin Theater, which is now the Neil Simon, which had like a string of flops. So we were supposed to go to a smaller Broadway house. And then the Alvin opened up because that's where Merrily We Roll Along flopped and Little Johnny Jones flopped and Little Prince and the Aviator flopped. And there was another one. There was like a string of flops. And I think the... Times Review started with the poor ushers at the Alvin Theater. <laughs> it listed all the flops. And then it said something like, now a fifth turkey has come to roost. The review went downhill from there. <laughs> Years ago, I interviewed Carol Channing, which was an experience. But <laughs> <laughs> She was amazing. Yeah. But she said that when she did Dolly, there was a certain point where everybody in the cast knew that it was going to hit. Yeah. And she said other shows, not certain. Sometimes, right. you know, sometimes. So is is that the same experience you have, Jason Grah? Yes, Richard. Uh, oh, I do that for the... I love that. <laughs> I do it for the, you know, audience so yeah, that they know no, who you are. I really yeah. appreciate it. They'll now know how to pronounce my name, yeah. Jason Grah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you, you really have to pay attention. I, I mean, I really listen to what 
people say afterwards, you know. When we first did Scrooge in Love, one of the people that was working at 42nd Street Moon, uh, Joe Mater, saw like our final run through. And, you know, he was a tough critic and he came up and he had tears in his eyes and he said, Jason, this is really good. And I was like, wow, Joe Mater liked it. So that's amazing. And then we were doing the previews and people had really, really positive things to say about it. So you do listen to how the audience responds. You know, it's it's challenging because no matter, I mean, I've been in my share of flops and hits. And when you're doing a flop, you have to believe that it's good because you're saying the lines and you're doing it and you're working with these people and you want it to be good. You invested so much into it. So I always want everything to be good. So a lot of times I'll read a script and I think, mm, I don't think this is great, but you start working on it and it becomes special to you and you find great things about it. And um, some of the best experiences I've had have been rehearsing flops, but then it's heartbreaking when it opens and critics scream them. What were some of those great moments then? Oh, my God. Well, Pat and Other Shoes was, of course, it was heartbreaking once, you know, those reviews came out on Broadway because we were, you know, I was 22 and making money being on Broadway. You know, that was exciting. There was a show I did at uh, the WPA that Skip Kennan wrote called Feathertop. And we had done the readings. It was based on a Nathaniel Hawthorne short story. And Susan Schulman directed it. And Steve Bogardus played the Feathertop Scarecrow and Alex Corey was in it and Laura Dean and and I would just play I played the young hero that exposes the scarecrow for being who he is. <laughs> it sounds so stupid what I'm talking about. But I mean, we would do the readings and the workshops and I would I was sobbing at the end and everybody just loved it. And the rehearsal process was fabulous. And it just opened and people didn't respond. Here was another interesting one. So I did at 54 Below, you know, they do these musicals, right. concerts. And so I got asked to do the lead in... Do you remember the show, A Broadway Musical? Vaguely. That Charles Strauss and Lee Adams wrote. Right. And it was based on them writing Golden Boy and the, and putting Golden Boy up. Golden Boy, right? They wrote. There was the play Golden Boy, but there well, was Well, there was the a musical. musical with Sammy Davis. Yes, that. So it was based on that. And it lasted one night on Broadway. And... I sang a song on one of Bruce Kimmel's albums, Smashing New York Times. And it's Charles Strauss, and I've done a lot of his stuff. I did an album of his. So I was thrilled to be asked. And, you know, I'm working on the music. I was like, God, well, Charles Strauss, you know, he's great. And it's a great score. And we started putting it together. And some really good, some people came back from the original cast. And we got really excited about it. And, you know, it was kind of an, a fancy crowd that we did it for the first show. And afterwards, you know, I went up to my friends and said, hey, what about this, huh? This could have a little life again. And they all just shook their head and said, no, nope, it's a turkey. Sorry. <laughs> Wasn't he also bring back Birdie? Yes, as a matter of fact, we've come full circle. <laughs> and Annie, too, I believe, as well. <laughs> he wrote Annie, too. He did write Annie, too. But he wrote Annie. And he wrote Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah, he's had some huge hits. Not too well on the sequels. <laughs> yeah, the sequels maybe. They weren't necessary. Your first big hit was uh, Forever Plowed, is that right? I suppose that was my, yeah. And yeah. Th that put you on the map. I guess so. I mean, I'd done a lot of little stuff before. Where my life really changed creatively was I did Candide at the Guthrie Theater right before Forever Plowed. And you played Candide. Yeah, I played yeah. Candide. And I everything was so magnificent. And I kind of was like, 
doing shows. Some were good, some were bad in New York, and there was some, you know. But I was always working in New York. But it was like everything changed. I thought, wow, you know, you can actually, you really can do a job where you work with a great director who's Garland Wright and work on an incredible piece like Candide and sing this Bernstein score and work at a theater like the Guthrie and get paid handsomely. And it was like, yeah, you know, I can make some different kind of decisions and I can actually make some decisions. <laughs> I don't have to say yes to everything. <laughs> and then Forever Plant, oddly enough, happened right after that. And that was just a, you know, phenomenon. Nothing tops Candide, so there Candide's you go. Candide's it. I know, I loved it. Life is happiness indeed. Mares to ride and books to read. Though of noble birth I'm not, I'm delighted with my lot. Though I've no official mother and I've no distinctive features, I love all my fellow creatures and the creatures love each other. Well, I screwed up the words. I switched things. So. Well, it's been a while. Mm. Uh, when you're doing a show like Scrooge and Love once a year, is it easy or hard to get back into it? Well, it's been three years now. So we did it 15 oh, and 16, as you pointed out, and then, and then not since. So I'm finding uh, memorizing it is really not as hard as I thought it would be because it's all there. You just got to dust off. The One thing I'm curious about, since you do a lot of these albums of songs from different composers that come from shows, when you're doing them, are you thinking, well, this is the Jason Gross style, or are you thinking, going back and thinking, well, this is a character song. Do I need to get to know the character? How does that work? For the old stuff? Well, you know, you have to look at it as the character. You know, if you're doing it out of context, then you, you know, you want to put your own stamp on it. John McGlynn was very specific about, you know, he really wanted you to follow the note values and not take too many liberties or bend, you know, the style too much. We were very lucky in a lot of the albums that I did, not Strike of the Band, Strike of the Band, we got a script, but we just did the songs. But a lot of the shows we did, like Sitting Pretty, Babes in Arms, 50 million Frenchmen, we had staged them, and so we all knew what the characters were. So it was really a great luxury to have that when we got to do the albums. Do you ever go back to characters even on newer shows, or are you just kind of doing your thing? Yeah, no, I'm an actor. Yeah, you know, you want to put your own stamp on it, but I will say, like, Wicked, I was pleasantly surprised, you know, that they really welcome what you bring individually to the character. I kind of was afraid because I thought, oh, God, it's this big green machine. And so they're going to, you know, kind of put me in a straitjacket and I'm going to have to do what the guy before me did. But there's been so many different types of people that have played the characters in Wicked that they really welcomed uh, my style and so you know they kept a lid on me because every so often you know you get bored like around 13th month you know you're going braca 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 so you know they were like all right that's not supposed to be the wizard's laugh there that's alphabet's very serious moment so you know things like that i had to kind of go all right got it did they say well joel gray did it this way never 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 yeah that was really good i was happy about that you've also moved into television you were on friends yeah yeah, Friends was, uh, I was on the second season of Friends, and uh, well, I moved out to L.A. to do Forbidden Hollywood, Gerard Alessandrini's thing, and that was the first time he had ever tackled film, and it was a great way to move to L.A. because it was kind of like an in-house industrial out there, and so we all got a lot of television. The cast got to do a lot of TV there, and so Friends was around, and that's when Must See TV was there, so I was on Frasier and Caroline the City. So Friends, it was the second season, and... You know, I had no idea 
um, I hadn't watched it. And uh, so my scene was with Joey, Matt LeBlanc. And, um, you know, I was playing this really snarky casting director and they just thought it was so funny how rude I was. He was auditioning for a movie. So I was like eating potato chips at the audition and just being a real a-hole. And uh, so they just loved it. And when we did it in front of the audience, the audience hissed at me because you can't like, take their friends down and he had just I didn't realize that he had just gotten fired from days of our lives as Dr. Drake Ramori whatever his name and so uh, they were protecting Joey and they didn't want this guy that was just coming in for one episode (laughs) to take him down so all the writers surrounded me and said okay we need to make him a little nicer and I said yeah but he's a casting director (laughs) they said we'll make him a really nice casting director Well, speaking of casting directors, the Me Too movement has been around now for a couple of years. I've asked a number of actresses, gotten the response that almost unanimously that they didn't really have issues, but they know people who did. Did you personally have issues? Did you watch women having issues? I probably had a couple issues. I have now since talked to people who have had issues that I didn't realize that. We were all in theater, so, you know, you just kind of, you rolled with it a little bit. I mean, no, I never had to sleep with anybody to get a job or anything like that. But, uh, you know, there have been friends of mine who have been, you know, ha- who have had to uh, own up to the fact or or have to talk to people about, you know, being approached by people in power, and they were made to feel very uncomfortable or felt obligated to have to do something. When you were just getting started, AIDS hit, and it must have hit your friends on Broadway at the same time. You know, I love New York, and I romanticize about, you know, when I moved there in 1981, you know, it was was heaven, and I lived there for 16 years, and then I was back and forth between, and I still go back there a lot, but I, you know, I do love to romanticize about how incredible it was to live in New York, and it was, but it was also really dark and really scary, and so many people around me were dropping like flies, and I think everybody that was there was scared, you know, we were all scared, we all thought, oh my God, you know, every time you sneezed, you thought, this is it. Well, I remember out here. I mean, it was the same thing, total terror. And my stepbrother in New York died. Yeah, really? I mean, yeah. I mean, you couldn't avoid it. Yeah. You couldn't avoid it. Yeah. Um, then luckily the hot cocktail come, came along and everything changed. Yeah, I know. It's incredible. I mean, I have friends that went through all of that in the 80s and they're still here and they're doing great. What a huge relief. God, if I had to do one more AIDS benefit, I mean, we're still doing them, but we're not doing nearly as many as we used to, you know. You did the Lucky Charms Leprechaun? Yeah, I what, did. What was that voice? <laughs> I'm going to try to get Jason Grodin. <laughs> Let's see if I can <clears throat> find that high-pitched thing. That me eighth magical marshmallow shape. It's magically delicious. Thank you. <laughs> and you also, um, you did... You did other voiceovers. You've done... Yes, I did. I did that for five and a half years. It was a great gig. That was a really good gig. Uh, And then the other one I did that was on all the time was the uh, Western Union Moneygrams. And um, it was while I was doing Forever Platt, and I was the crooner in Forever Platt. So uh, the director of the commercials came and saw me and went, oh, my God, he's perfect for this voice. But it was when they were doing the, everybody needs some money sometime. Everybody needs some cash somehow. And that thing ran for like four and a half years. 
when we started, you were going to tell an anecdote, and I completely forget what the subject oh, uh, was. Oh, well, you were talking about, you saw, we were talking about Sondheim's Roadshow, and you were talking about when you interviewed him, which is amazing. And I said, oh, I did this duet demo tape of a duet that I thought was from one of the shows, and you said there it was in both shows, Bounce and Roadshow. Right. And for Barbara Streisand's duet album. And so the producer of the album called me and said, you know, we think that you're like the only guy that can do this demo tape. It's going to be a duet between Barbara and Alec Baldwin on the CD. So Barbara's stand-in, who does all the demo stuff, Missy, and I can't think of her last name, but she is unbelievable. She can do anything with her voice. So I was listening to it, and they said we, they had done a version of it, and Sondheim wasn't happy with it, and they would like to have me come in and record it with Missy. And so we went in, and we sang it, and they kept stopping me, going, oh, no, you sound way too good. You got you sound way too good, way too good. And so they said, well, you're going to scare Alec Baldwin away. You've got to really just like <laughs> just be really basic. So I thought, oh, that's nice that they thought of me right off the bat to sound like <laughs> Alec Baldwin. But uh, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so uh, anyway, then they said, you know, there's a scene before it. And we'd love for you to come out to Barbara's house in two days to record the scene with Barbara in her studio. And I about fell off the stool that I was sitting on. And they ended up canceling it because they were falling behind in the schedule, but I was crushed. So I was so crushed that I sent her an email and just a huge fan letter. It was kind of a masterpiece. And she wrote me back this really beautiful, delightful email that I have now framed in my office. Did you ever meet her? Well, I did meet her, but she didn't realize it, but I talked about it in the email. She saw Ragtime when we premiered it in L.A., and I played Houdini in it. Right. And she came backstage to use the John. And so she was. She walked right by me and James Brolin and a bodyguard. And they were like at the bathroom right off stage right. And I had to go up to the catwalk uh, 60 feet above the stage because I was Houdini and I had my straight jacket on and I had to make my entrance hanging upside down, which I've never done sober before. <laughs> and um, just kidding. Anyway, so I stood there in my straight jacket kind of standing nonchalantly next to the bathroom door so I could see her come out. And she came out and kind of looked at me and smiled. Kept walking. <laughs> that was it. That was it. <laughs> you know, I'd completely forgotten that I actually have seen you on stage, and that was in Ragtime. Ragtime. In L.A., yeah. That was amazing. I loved that show. Yeah, me too. Um, was that one of the shows where you kind of knew? Yes, and it had opened in Toronto. Garth Jabinski, yeah. I know. Yeah. Say what you will. He got a lot of jobs for people. So for that, I, was, I will always be grateful. Well, it also cost that show a much longer run. It folded because he folded. <laughs> yeah, it did. And he built theaters for it. And, you know. Uh, let me look at your, some of your credits here because there's some really interesting stuff that you did. You worked on a show called Grand Night for Singing. That was a review of Rodgers and Hammerstein. Yep, yep. Uh, when, you, when you were doing that on stage, getting back to my earlier question, were you trying to stay in character? Were you drifting No, away? that was about us. Then okay. that became about us. We did it at Rainbow and Stars. It was Vicki Clark. That was like her first big show. She'd Victoria been, Clark. She was a, a Faith Prince's understudy in 
and Guys and Dolls before that. And so this was her first standalone thing. And Karen Ziemba and Marty Vidnovic and Lynn Winterstellar. And it was just an incredible cast. Walter Bobby directed it. And so, you know, we took the songs out of context and made them about us. So I sang Maria, you know, but I, it was about a love song, me singing to a girl who's a Fliberty Gibbet, a Will-O-The-Wisp, a clown, right. rather than singing about a nun. <laughs> so we did make it very personal. And Lynn Wintersteller and I took Shall We Dance, and Lynn's like eight inches taller than me. So it became about a challenge of how this short dude... <laughs> can navigate around this tall, sinewy, beautiful woman. Uh, on shows like that, how much input do you get? Uh, it depends on who you're working with, but with Walter, we had a lot of input, which was really nice. I've worked with other directors who uh, you know, are not quite as collaborative. I love to work with collaborative directors. I just think that shows the sign of a remarkable director when he trusts the actor that he hired to have input and, you know, to say stuff, because it only makes the director look great, you know. But I've been lucky to work with some really fun, collaborative directors. Have you ever thought about directing yourself? I have directed, and I like it, but I, I prefer performing. I've directed shows that I've been in. I've directed A Grand Night for Singing, and I directed several productions of Forever Platt, and I've directed some cabaret shows, people's solo cabaret shows. I really like it. You know, I really enjoy directing, but I really love performing. Jason Grott, now you're in L.A., and in L.A. there's so much new material and television these days. Do you ever think about doing a series? <laughs> Only every minute. Really? No, you know, I did a series on Showtime years ago, and I loved it. I love doing television. I like to just work any way I can to make money. Right. But uh, I have not done TV in the last five years because I'm gone a lot and uh, my agents yell at me. But it's like, what do you do? Do you say no to a job because you're going to stay home because you might get some auditions? <laughs> you know, so I, I take the work. I really like to work. So, you know, I I think now uh, after I get back from Scrooge and Love, I it looks like I have some months at home that maybe I can be available to audition for stuff. So, Well, given that there are about 10 new networks all clamoring oh for material. I know. There's bizarre. a lot of shows out there. Yeah. There's a lot of shows out there, so it would be delightful. How do you manage to keep your voice in shape? Uh, I still study. I study with Christina Safran, who's a Broadway incredible singer and dancer and actress, and I have to keep studying. I got to keep warming up and, you know, doing all that. Is it harder as you get older? You know, it's just different. I won't say harder, but it's it's trickier, you know. I notice in talking to you now that you can still have the range that you might have had 30 years ago. Barbara Cook obviously managed to keep that range, yeah. but even Streisand can't. Right. Is it just luck? Well, I just think it's how you take care of it and what you're doing. You know, I've never been, a, you know, like a balls-to-the-wall, loud, belty kind of singer, you know. So uh, I've always taken care of my voice, and I have a light sound, and I'm not like a tenor with these huge, high, crazy money notes and stuff. I have like a lyric baritone. I always call myself a tenor with no high notes. Tenor with no high notes. There you go. That's me. You've also done a couple of cabaret-type shows. There's one that you're still doing, I think? Well, I just did it last week in Orinda with Faith Prince. We have a show called The Prince and the Showboy. We 
we're one of the first stacks at 54 below, God, like whatever that was, seven years ago. And so we've done that around the country. And then I do another show with Liz Calloway. I went to school with both of those girls. We've done a lot of shows together. And they're two of my dearest friends. And I have my own solo shows as well. Jason Graw, afters. <laughs> Don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. You're making my night. <laughs> oh, thank God I can edit. <laughs> You've got to keep this in. <laughs> well, I do a podcast. I could just run the podcast straight through. Perf. Um, Jason. Mm. Graw, say it. Graw. Jason Graw, after Scrooge and Love, what do you have coming up? I have a a show in Palm Springs on New Year's Eve at Aqua, which is like this great restaurant stage place and stuff. So I'm going to be ringing in New Year's Eve in Palm Springs. So that'll be really fun. And then I do this Jerry Herman concert with Clea Blackhurst and Debbie Gravett and Ron Raines and Scott Coulter. We've got like six dates with symphonies next year. That's like what's lined up officially. And then I think I'm doing a play in Santa Barbara with Linda Pearl about Rosemary Clooney. So that should be kind of interesting. Wish us luck. I'll let you know if it's a turkey or if it goes really well. You've been listening to an interview with Jason Graw, who plays Ebenezer Scrooge in the musical Scrooge in Love at the Gateway Theater in San Francisco through December 22nd. For more info, you can go to 42ndStreetMoon.org, 42ndStMoon.org.